Welcome to the very last session of the Colorado College State of the Rockies 2006 conference. I'm Walt Hecox, and I'm a professor of economics as well as environmental science. I also am the faculty director of the Rockies Project. And the most sophisticated thing I just did today was to lower the curtain. <laughs> but I have a license. I was trained. So you can see that we are jacks of all trade. Tonight, to finish off the conference, we arrange to revisit the past, the better to understand what our future probably should look like. And to introduce our speaker tonight, we have Anne Hyde, professor of history, who is also the director of the Colorado College Southwest Studies Program. So, Anne. Thank you so much for coming today and for being so patient. We're really gratified that so many people are interested in the complex issues around water in the West, and particularly in John Wesley Powell. And today is our capstone event. I'd like to introduce humanities scholar Clay Jenkinson, who's probably best known as the host of the nationally syndicated weekly radio program, the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We all recognize his voice. Clay also asks hosts cultural tours throughout the lands explored by Lewis and Clark. And he's here with us today as the nation's leading first-person interpreter of John Wesley Powell. And I'd like to say a few words to introduce Powell. John Wesley Powell is a war hero, an adventurer, and a visionary. He was born in upstate New York in 1838, the son of a hard-scrabble itinerant minister. His family moved steadily west into the middle border district in the years before the Civil War. Powell joined the Union Army early, was wounded at the Battle of Shiloh on April 6, 1862, and lost his right arm. In 1867, he made his first trip to Colorado. In 1869, he led nine men down the canyons of the Green and Colorado Rivers in a hundred-day odyssey that was part lark, part ordeal, but certainly well publicized. Over the next 20 years, he made nearly 20 trips to the West. He studied the native, pe the native people of the Great Basin. He made pioneering discoveries in geology. And slowly, he came to realize that the West really couldn't be developed with the tools and habits practiced by settlers in the Mississippi Valley. Thomas Jefferson gave us the rectangular survey grid system, section lines, townships, square states, all of those things that are familiar to Americans. But he never saw the West. John Leslie Powell spent his entire life in the West, and he came to believe that Mr. Jefferson's vision and his infrastructure broke down beyond the 100th meridian. His 1878 Arid Lands Report was a radical blueprint for sustainability and democracy in the West. However, the nation refused to listen to Major Powell's proposals. In his last major public appearance, he predicted that failure to come to terms with the fragility and aridity of the West would leave a legacy of conflict and litigation in one of the Earth's most beautiful landscapes. And we certainly do litigate well over water in the West. Today, you'll get an opportunity to meet this remarkable and complicated man. The program will consist of three parts. First, Mr. Powell will tell the story of his life and adventures. Then he will take your questions. Finally, the scholar behind Mr. Powell will emerge to take your questions and your comments. So without further ado, let me introduce John Wesley Powell.
My friends call me Wes. My colleagues call me the Major. And the Ute and Paiute Indians, amongst whom I spent a fair portion of my life in study, called me Copperots, right arm missing. Today, the 13th of April 2006, is the birth date of Thomas Jefferson. He was born on April 13, 1743, in Albemarle County, Virginia. And I am here tonight to say that I am a Jeffersonian, but with a difference. The key fact about Mr. Jefferson is that he never traveled farther than 70 miles west of his birthplace in Virginia. He bought the West. He sent explorers to the West, some of whom I greatly revere. He legislated the West by devising the rectangular survey grid system in our system of townships. And he envisioned, in fact, that all of the the states of the American West would become identical in size and perfectly square. Uh, Not as large as your Colorado. He thought the size of Ohio or Indiana or Iowa, but perfect squares. And that this this system of, of absolute regularity would be imposed from Monticello as a matrix upon which our development pattern would be based. I am a Jeffersonian in philosophy. That is, I believe that the highest use of America is for family farmers to live quietly on the land. But the fatal flaw of Mr. Jefferson's thinking, or let me put it differently, the flaw for Mr. Jefferson is that he didn't come here. It rains 44 inches per annum at Monticello. And Jefferson believed that the Ohio Valley would characterize the rest of the American West. In other words, that Utah and Nevada and Eastern Oregon and Idaho and Colorado and Wyoming and Montana and Dakota would look a great deal like Indiana. That was his mistake. Now, had he come here, he would have seen through his error. But because he didn't, he imposed upon the West a system of development that proves to be ruinous. You think of me as an adventurer. I regard myself as a reformist. Or to put it this way, to preserve Mr. Jefferson's vision, we must radically alter the patterns of development beyond the 100th meridian. The 100th meridian, which passes from Bismarck, North Dakota, through Pierre, South Dakota, and all the way down, is the line of demarcation between that part of the country that gets sufficient rain to produce crops, and the 40% of the continent, which is too dry for Jeffersonian agriculture. If we attempt to use here the systems that work in West Virginia or Ohio, we are setting up homesteaders and honest citizens for failure. And we are also creating conditions 
of monopoly of resources by the wealthy, the lucky, and the first. I grew up in upstate New York. My parents were named Joseph and Mary. My father had come to this country in 1830 from Britain. My father was an itinerant preacher and a hard-scrabble farmer. And he moved us from one frontier to the next, looking for the great opportunity to succeed in this country. And I would have been a hard-scrabble farmer consumed by the difficulties of producing crops if it hadn't been for two things. First, I had a mentor. My father moved us to Ohio. My father was an abolitionist. But southern Ohio, even though it was technically part of the northern states and therefore technically opposed to slavery, southern Ohio was actually sympathetic to the slaveocracy. And so because my father was an abolitionist, I was too. And I was frequently jeered, teased, and sometimes beaten on the schoolyard. And finally, a self-taught philosopher-farmer from southern Ohio by the name of George Crookham, who had the habit of taking in promising young boys to teach them a little bit about the history of science, came to my father and said to him, Britain, give me your son and I will make him a scholar. My father was not eager for this to happen, but he allowed it, and it changed my life. George Crookham had taken his barn and converted it into a field laboratory. He taught me how to make scientific observations of accuracy. He taught me how to tramp through the fields and gain the stamina with which one collects artifacts and sees nature in its its true form. He's the first person who put important books in front of me and encouraged me to read them. So that's the first step, George Crookham, intervention by somebody from outside my family, to lift me out of that cycle of bare subsistence that characterized the middle border in those years. And then secondly, of course, the Civil War. The Civil War came. I immediately volunteered in the 20th Illinois